0: I think what we need to do is probably consider each group of accounts differently. Like, not everything is the same. If the prospect's going to potentially bring you five figures or six figures, you can't treat them like a multi million dollar account. You have to give more personal relevance, you have to give more touches, more insight into what they're doing. I think that's another thing. So, people that are working those bigger accounts have to probably have different metrics than the people or the sales team that's having smaller deal sizes. It can't be all the same metrics, and I think that's part of the evolution, and I'm hoping that's part of the evolution.
1: Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Christina Jaramillo. She's the founder of Personal ABM. And in today's conversation, we're going to talk about how to win, protect, and expand accounts that you want. We also dive into what Christina has identified as really sort of the largest sales problem, namely that sales is always trying to push their buyers through their process instead of sellers helping buyers create a buying vision that's so strong that it pulls buyers or the buyers pull sales, marketing, and account teams through their buying process. As Christina shares, short sales cycles, high margins, and high client retention rates are the common rewards for salespeople who allow their prospects to pull them into the next steps. It's all very interesting, and we're going to cover that and much, much more. But before we get to Christina, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Christina, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for having me. Well,
1: it's a pleasure to have you here. So, uh, you're joining us from North Carolina?
0: Yeah, right outside Raleigh.
1: Oh, that's a very pleasant area. I was there two years ago, keynoting at a conference, and uh, yeah, really enjoyed it. I mean, it was yeah, it's, it's just about this here. time of year, springtime, I think baseball season was just starting. I was, went over and nice. had to go look at the the Bulls, the Durham Bulls. Yes. Uh, it's a great stadium, stadium. As a as a Bull Durham fan, had to go do that. It's Changed quite a bit since since the movie. A little bit. Yeah, yeah. Actually, a great a great place to go see a ball game. I mean, it is.
0: We've gone a couple of times, and I can't wait to go back soon.
1: Yeah, well, I think yeah. List that on the number of activities that we all wish we could go back to pretty soon. Seriously. Yeah, you we were talking about airplane travel, for instance, but uh, done a little of that, but. Uh, I feel more comfortable now that uh, now that I'm vaccinated. So, um, so tell us a little bit about what you do.
0: Yeah, so I'm president of personal ABM, so personal account based marketing, and we take a very uh, micro approach to uh, account based marketing. Is a you know some people will say they're running an ABM campaign and do target maybe 200, 300 plus accounts, and we typically only target about. Uh, two to three dozen at a time. And it's because they're tier one accounts. They're the ones that are going to have the greatest revenue growth opportunity, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and the biggest deal sizes. And we help B2B, um, you know, SaaS tech supply chain companies, you know, gain traction, win, protect and expand, uh, you know, at at risk accounts. And, um, you know, we've been doing that for about 10 years now. And we've just kind of honed our skills and, you know, what we noticed is that the added relevance is really what's needed, hence uh, personal
1: ABM. Right. So what was the name of the company before ABM?
0: It was actually LinkedIn ABM and it got super confusing because everyone thought we were associated with LinkedIn and LinkedIn was just the platform that we used, but we noticed uh, in talking to our clients that because it was approach that they took in their live conversations, their email conversations, Mm -hmm. um, content, that it was more of a general strategy as opposed to an approach just to use on one platform. So it kind of pigeonholed us. Um, and we just decided to evolve to that.
1: But you were using the the word ABM ten years ago?
0: Ten years ago? No. We renamed ourselves five plus years ago.
1: Okay. Yeah I was gonna say it because it's a little more current current yeah. In the usage. Yeah, absolutely. Well I like what you talk about is that and this is certainly something I, I believe, and I don't think it's stressed enough, and you talk about this in one of your blog posts, is that you say in most chances, in most cases, you have one chance to win, protect, and expand accounts. Uh, one mistake, or misfire as you call it, uh, and that could be it. Yes. And I believe that's the case. And I, it starts with that first interaction that that uh, the company has with your SDR, your BDR, or whomever, Right. Why do most sellers just not seem to grasp that idea that every single interaction you have is is decisive?
0: yeah, you know i'm, I'm kind of confused to mind that myself. I don't understand. I, I like to think of it that every touch point is like a little mini sales conversation, uh, whether you're sharing content, whether you're providing insight, um, whether you're trying to teach someone a new way of you know appro- approaching their business, how they do their business, how they make more money, how they you know increase efficiency, whatever it is Mm -hmm. that you're trying to help them with. Um, But every time that you communicate someone with someone, it's really important that you're adding value along the way, because if you're not, then chances are that people are going to fall out of the the sales cycle uh, or the funnel. They're going to stall. They're just going to go silent or they're not going to see that you, you know, or something, somebody and someone who can help them achieve their goals.
1: You're not worth their time. Correct. Yeah. I, I tell sellers to think about it in the sense that every time, for every interaction you have with a buyer, at one level of their mind, they're calculating a return on the time they invested in you. And if you string together too many interactions, that there's no value for them, there's no return for them, they gave you their time, what did you give them in exchange for that time? That's when they stop returning your phone calls. And it could be, Could be that first interaction with an SDR. I mean, it it could be, yeah, could be two, you know, sort of check-in calls you make on somebody that just waste their time completely and they say, look, this is yeah, this isn't value added for me. Is this a function of how we train people? Is that we're just not stressing the importance of I think it could be.
0: Yeah, I think it's a top-down thing. I think maybe too many organizations are saying, you know, you have to complete X amount of calls, send X amount of emails book X amount of demos or appointments or whatever their, their metric is. And I think it's more of a volume game that the people are playing as opposed to a quality game. And because of that, you're, you're going to lose that value add that you like you, that you were saying, because if you are you know, somebody's time is their most valuable asset. At least right. that's what I, I consider. So make if sure. you're wasting their time, I might give you a chance once, twice, if you're lucky, third time, probably not. So you have to make sure that every time you are touching a prospect, whether that's, calling them, emailing them, um, however you're interacting with them, that you are adding some kind of value and that they see that it's worth a, rela- a relationship worth pursuing and worth maintaining.
1: Yeah, I know. We, we've got this confusion going on in sales because on one hand, people want to say, yes, the decision is all about the buying experience and how we experience the individual seller. And to your point, on the other hand, that may be, but we're going to carpet bomb you with with emails and phone calls and and sometimes, and that's just on the front end of the, of the cycle, right? It was once you get the AE involved, you know it could be you know ineffective discovery, superficial qualification, all these things that where the buyer is just like, yeah, the seller's being pushed, 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 and the buyer's not feeling heard or understood. And once they reach that point, then it's pretty much over for you.
0: Yeah, that's really hard to reverse a no position or try to get someone to come out of height, the woodwork, after they've decided to you know ignore any kind of interaction that you've tried to pursue. It's very difficult.
1: Yeah. Bring your A-game. Always. Every every time. There's no insignificant or unimportant sales interaction. Uh, they're all important. It's just, you have to have that mindset that each one could be decisive.
0: Absolutely. And
1: some people say, yeah, "Yeah, yeah, we can be more informal. We can be more blah blah blah." It's like, yeah, it's one thing to, you know, like I am, wear a t-shirt today on a call, but <laughs> it's another thing to not be informed about the buyer, not uh, be in touch, not trying to make an effort to understand what their really their concerns are, where they want to go, and so on.
0: Yeah, it shows right away when you're not prepared and you haven't done your homework or your background research.
1: Yeah, well, which sort of gets to a problem that you identified. And I think this is is something that's really important is, and I love the perspective, is that you say the problem that exists today is that sellers are still trying to push buyers to the finish line as opposed to having the buyers pull them across the finish line. So tell us about that.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, I heard somebody mention it the other way that you shouldn't be considering yourself a seller so much as maybe a guider. Uh, You want to guide them through the, the the conversation. You know, I'm a big proponent um, of the challenger sale. And part of that is kind of teaching for differentiation, but also so that it leads back to your solution. And you give the customer, the buyer, a chance to come to the conclusion on their own, as opposed to you forcing it down their throat or pushing it onto them. So they feel like, oh, I'm the one that came to this decision. I was informed. I was taught. I was guided through the process. And it was a much better process and when they become a customer, if you know, hopefully they do, it's Mm -hmm. gonna lead to probably a longer relationship. So not only does it help in the actual sale, but then in the customer lifetime value as well. And it just is it starts the whole relationship on a better foot than noticing or just feeling like they were pushed into something that maybe they didn't really want to do.
1: Yeah. Well I like to I like to sort of separate this idea of persuasion from Mm influence. Now, I know a lot of people want to conflate those terms, and but I think they're distinct. Actually, if you look them up, they're quite distinct. Um, and yeah, we treat people persuade. Use persuasion as a hammer, to your point. Uh, we're going to beat you over the head because our basic operating theory is there's only one solution for your problem, and that's us. And your problem needs to conform to our solution. Whereas to the point you're talking about is is having the buyer pull is as you're trying to influence choices they're making trade offs they're making about what's what is the problem, what is the size of the problem, what's the scope, the nature of the problem, things that you might uh you know challenge the buyer's paradigm on uh what are the alternatives what are the outcome potential outcomes, and when buyers make those choices, yeah, they feel like they've made those choices themselves
0: yeah, absolutely I think. We also have to consider that instead of pushing out tons of content, kind of confusing people, um, is to guide them with the content that's really relevant to them, and it makes it easier for them to digest and to understand and come to their own conclusion, as opposed to being inundated with so much information that they don't even know where to begin or how to decipher it.
1: Well, we seem to be getting into that that mode, though, where you know, if you read, as I'm sure you do, the the you know, marketing and sales literature, it's it's all about more content, more content, more content. And not enough context. And, Absolutely. But on the other hand, you also have sales tools vendors saying, look, our, our intent is to substitute what we do for the judgment of the seller. So they're sort of trying to say, look, maybe we know best, but it's really, I think, for the seller to have the impact, to be relevant, as you talk about, they need to be that, that resource helping guide the buyer.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think we're just so focused, especially since given 2020's craziness, um, to mm-hmm. so just push out more, you're right, articles, contents, blog posts, white papers, uh, emails, uh, invites to connect, whatever it is. But I think um, you know, it feeds into that buyers l- lacking confidence. And I don't think it's confidence issue with maybe the vendor, but confidence in themselves to make a decision because they can't decipher, they can't um you know, they can't make a decision based on too much information. It's almost like they're over-informed. And we know that so many people are, you know, are guiding themselves and self-teaching before they even talk to sales. So I think we have to understand that this could be, you know, hurting us more than it's helping us. I think if you worry about the quality of content that you're giving and you actually write it or produce it for the audience that you want it to, um, you know, to be relevant to, whether that's an actual named company, which is even better because you can get super targeted that way, mm. or to you know a position or a role that's having a certain challenge that you've seen in several organizations. But I don't think that it's a matter of a numbers game. Every time marketing and sales plays a numbers game, I think we wind up shooting ourselves in the foot. Well,
1: let's talk about that for a second, because you talked about with your work with clients, you take the target lists down to a much smaller number, um, and yet. Yeah, it's not unusual. you know, I talk to companies, I'll talk about, yeah, we've got 600, we've got 1000 names on our target list or something and they're counting, you know, frequency of contact within the you know, tracking all the metrics, you know, engagement metrics within individuals within those accounts. You're saying that's too broad.
0: No, I think it's needed to do that, but maybe for your tier 2 and tier 3, but I think you need to have more of a Um, diverse approach. That's why we work with the tier ones because, you know, typically marketing will help sales maybe get some marketing qualified leads, sales qualified leads. But if they really want to close those bigger deals, they're going to have to have a much targeted, much more relevant and personal context for those tier one accounts. Um, You know, it's something that takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of resources. So you better know that that account is, you know, worth all of those things. Mm -hmm. And it has to be a named account. It can't just say that it fits certain criteria. It has to be you know, I'd like to really close Oracle, but there has to be a reason why I want to work with them. Because I know that I have this customer success story, I have these results, I have this case study, I have this insight into what is going on in that organization that I can help them with. As opposed to saying, you know, a lot of salespeople that are maybe either new to the the, the fields or maybe just a little more uh, ambitious go for big named accounts that they have no relevance with or no. Um, you know ex- no experience with like everyone wants to work with oracle everyone would love to work with google amazon all the big names mm-hmm. but if you don't have anything to speak to them that's going to you know make them see how you can help them because you have experience helping organizations that are savings, you know uh facing different similar challenges um or you know we're going through different things that are, are similar to what they're uh facing then it's not going to it's just not going
1: to work yeah i mean the there's virtue and focus, right, in narrowing your, your niche. Uh, and especially when you're talking about from this personal ABM perspective, which is that you really do get personal. Uh, you talk about creating a human bond with the, the right people within the account. And that's sort of unfashionable these days to some degree. In some quarters, Absolutely. people, all, people all, you know, dismiss this idea of uh, personal connections and the need to be able to develop those.
0: I think it's because it's not scalable, or they see it as not scalable. And what I come back with when someone says that, because, you know, it's it's too hard, it's too much work. And yeah, it is, but it's also going to give you the most return. And so what you do is whatever approach you're taking with these tier ones, whatever you're learning, experiencing, seeing what's working or not working, doing that kind of testing and and seeing what is moving things forward in deals and, and expansion conversations, you can then kind of Scale it to the other uh, campaign, so it's going to help your tier two and tier three accounts, whether sales and marketing, you know, can learn from the 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 results from tier one. So it's not that it's not scalable; it's just how you use that information.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I want to get back to this idea about buyers pulling the sellers too, because one of the items you guys talk about a lot is this idea of the buying vision, which uh, you don't hear talked. Much about actually, you know, Forrester did a study on it. I think seven, eight years ago, they talked about, you know, if you're the seller that uh, is the first to present this compelling buying vision. Let's say it wasn't. I don't think they used the word compelling, but um, to the to the to the buyer, excuse me, then your odds of winning the deal went up pretty substantially, like sixty five percent. I think they talked about. So, as virtue in being first across the line with this. Buying vision that the buyer buys into. So, describe what that buying vision is. What are What are you trying to achieve with the buyer to create this?
0: So it's you know I think about it as you know how people marketing usually is is focusing on people that are in market maybe shown intent um, you know things like that. But there's that's a small percentage, and if you go down to the middle of everything that uh, prospect perspective wise or prospect wise. It's like sixty percent of the market that's stuck in status quo. So sixty percent of the market that doesn't even know they have a problem, doesn't even realize that there's an issue, doesn't think they're, doesn't realize that there's a better way of doing things that they've been, um, you know, how, better make them more successful in their job. Let's sure. say. So if you can create that buying vision, explain to them what they're doing that they didn't maybe know. So think of give them a new way of looking at something. Give them a new way of perceiving how they they um, handle their day-to-day job. I mean, part of that buying vision is showing them a new way to think, showing them a new way of approaching it. Mm -hmm. And I think that goes to the guiding through that we were talking about as opposed to pushing it through and just saying, you know, pushing your company, pushing your generic um, benefits, your generic uh, features. And that well, creates a generic, differentiation. generic
1: too. insights, even. I mean, I think that's exactly. to reach that point. Is is, you know, to me, I think a lot of companies would uh, sellers would hear all oh, this idea of a buying vision. Well, that's something I got from marketing, and I'm going to tell you that. And it's like, well, no, no, this is an outcome of the work you're doing with the account to really understand, you know, the problem they're trying to solve. Help them understand the problem they're trying to solve help them understand the alternatives that that exist for solving it, the alternative outcomes they potentially could achieve. The buying vision's not, hey, that's not something I don't lead with the buying vision. This is something that's developed collaboratively. Yes, absolutely. And, and I it, think
0: also has to be, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No,
1: no <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say it takes place later in the, the the cycle.
0: Yeah, it's not the first interaction for sure. No.
1: Um,
0: yeah, and I think people also have to figure out, you know, a lot of reasons a lot of uh problems with people uh prospects maybe not seeing the vision or not going into the vision is you're not per, you're not giving them the reason of to change or what the if you put it into perspective what happens if they don't change like this is what they're leaving on the table money wise mm-hmm. um efficiency wise whatever it is that you're trying to explain to them Because change is always hard. It's always difficult. And you have to show the pain of not changing versus the pain of changing.
1: Yeah. Well, I think the other thing with the buying vision though is is that it is a stage. It should be a stage in your sales process. Yeah, if if you've got stages listed in your typical linear fashion, it is a stage. If you're not conscious about driving towards the buyer agreeing to the buying vision. Uh, it's not going to happen. I mean, often you may win deals without it, but I mean, in general, if you'll be much more effective, is getting the buyer to buy into what that buying vision is, as a very deliberate step, is really important. And that's oftentimes requires, at least on larger deals, is that even working through the business case with them, right? So to your point, what's the, what's the cost of not taking action well, once you quantify what you may potentially achieve by the investment in whatever solution you're selling, the vision starts to become pretty compelling. Absolutely.
0: And I think another important po- aspect of that is this is a chance that you can have to explain the cost of maybe going with a competitor or going with an alternative solution. Or maybe uh, you know if they think that they can bring this solution in-house, what's the cost of doing that versus going to another vendor for help or another mm-hmm. provider?
1: Yeah, well again, it's it's I'm a huge believer that you really don't have a qualified opportunity until they've quantified the value of what they can achieve with their with the solution that you're you're proposing.
0: Yeah, and I think another thing that you have to or sellers should take into consideration is that you're arm the buyers with information to quantify that when they're having internal conversations that you can't be a part of that you're not privy to. Um, so if you can arm them with the quantifiable data or the, mm-hmm. you know the, you know you you're going to have a better t- chance of moving that to, to to a deal.
1: Yeah, well I mean most of those conversations take place out of earshot of of uh, of sellers. But I, mean, I think that sort of talks to a sort of perspective though that that comes from what you're talking about in terms of the the, the pull versus the push. Customer led, sort it's of, sort a of buyer led is this just a change in perspective about what the roles and sales are. You know, I, I was having a conversation with somebody where we were talking about specialized sales roles, and we understand the value of those, but you think about how we set them up is, you know, oftentimes since we've got our appointment setters, SDRs, BDRs, and then people say, yeah, then it transitions to the closers. And I'm like, okay, well, where are the sellers in here? <laughs> are missing a key part. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But that speaks to the attitude, right? About the push yes. that you talk about specifically is, look, we're going to create or identify potentially an opportunity and then we're going to give it to somebody whose job is to push somebody across the finish line just by the way we we conceptualize the role. I mean, even I've had I don't know, three conversations last week I was writing I keep writing I keep knocking my microphone over. Um you'll think after 925 of these, I wouldn't be doing that still, but um, wow, you got to see it twice in one day. Um, <laughs> is Yeah, you'd think after everything that's going on that people would sort of understand that's just not the way, we, the way we label things and the way people feel labeled and the roles they think they're filling have an enormous impact on the way the job gets done.
0: Absolutely. absolutely. Because then it becomes just like, and, it, and I'm going to push it down your throat until you close. And if not, I'm just going go to the next one. And it, yeah. it, it's not a good like, you would not want to be sold that way. If you flip the situation for a second, you would not want to be sold that way. You would not want to purchase that way. And if you did just because you had to, chances are you're not going to want to stay
1: that long. But I think we see the impact of this, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's, nothing is always 100% one way or another, right? You can still be a a pushy, persuasion-oriented, quote-unquote closer type—you're uh, still going to win business. I mean, you could you could be a unpleasant to deal with, but yeah, you know, if you have a modicum of competence, you're going to win some deals. But I think the issue, in at least in the tech sector these days, is they leave so much opportunity on the table. Win rates are so low that it's like, why why are you bothering? right is why don't you re-engineer your process and say look uh, to your point is we can more targeted we can we know that if we operate in a certain way we're going to yield a certain win rate but let's scale that at a higher win rate than sort of the way we do it now
0: i think that it would just because the mass way of doing it the just the numbers game is 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 it's going to work for a certain amount of time until it doesn't work and i think we're getting to that point if we haven't already and Definitely in some sectors. But if you're no one's gonna invest six, seven, eight figures if you push the solution and the features and benefits down their throat. It's just not gonna happen. You have to actually give them some value.
1: Shocking. What a shocking perspective.
0: Rocket science.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, but it's it's I've talked about that on the show before, is is conversations with CROs of you know big SaaS companies that are just not focused on this effectiveness side of things. I mean, not defined in the same way I do in terms of, look, if I've got five highly qualified opportunities, why should I only be winning one of them, and why is that acceptable? I mean, you can be able to. to your point earlier, yeah. We could you could scale that to a for a while, but at some point, that's just not going to work anymore.
0: Yeah, you're going to hit a wall work. eventually.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'd. I'd I don't know how do you get people. Is that they have to hit the wall before they come to their senses?
0: Yeah, it's, it's it's interesting that you say that. It's it's sometimes I feel like that when people come to us, they're like, you know, what we're just not getting sales anymore, or, or we're not getting the amount that we'd like. Mm-hmm. Um, we're keeping what we have. We're getting tons of demos, and we're getting tons of you know um, pros- prospect calls, but no one's coming through. And then we kind of step back and reevaluate and say, well. Are they even the right people? Are you speaking to people that are the best fit? Or you know, it's amazing to me how many people or how many organizations think that they have an ideal customer profile, but they—if you ask them what it is—you'll get multiple answers, or you'll get something so broad that it's not really um, focused enough. And I think it's just a lack of focus. I think sales and marketing are both guilty of just being all over the
1: place. Yeah, I th- definitely. I think that that can be the case in many companies, and I, some of that seems to. Emanate from the fact that you see this oftentimes in SaaS is that you know our goal is ultimately to be able to sell you know company will say founder will say like ultimately to sell to larger enterprises but we're going to you know start with SMB and work our way up to mid market and so on and my advice is always to those companies is well if you want to sell to big companies go sell to big companies be more targeted from the from the inception what I have lofty
0: uh, goals it's totally possible we worked with a yeah. startup that. Was like basically a nobody in the supply chain and logistics tech side, and they just because they flipped the script, changed the conversation with the prospect, they were able to you know outbid or excuse me outwin win uh, Oracle in that same space. And they, here where they are, they were a startup, had maybe ten employees, right? And they so it's just because they changed the conversation, and that's something that they can do if they can win or business from a company than or, an Oracle then like Oracle, then other organizations can do it, but it's just a matter of having those blinders on that you're focused on the end goal and not just everything.
1: Yeah, I think that it's sort of been this mythology for a lot of, lot of tech companies over the years is that, yeah, we have to earn our spur, earn our stripes, uh, yada, yada, yada. And I grew some startups and worked with startups, so we grew that yeah, our product was only good for big companies, so let's go sell big companies and sell against the big brand names and and win. Because, yeah, we flipped the conversation. We challenged their assumptions. We forced them to look at the problem they were trying to solve differently. It really turned out to be a different problem they were trying to solve. And by virtue of identifying that, it made sense to go with us versus the other guys. Um, and the customer pulled us across the finish line in that respect, as you talk about. It's not I keep saying it's not that hard. I mean it's hard work. Yeah, it's hard
0: work, but if it's if it's something that's worth doing, it's gonna be hard work. So
1: yeah. And
0: sales was never no one's ever said that sales is
1: easy. So <laughs> well, that's not true, actually. Yeah, I think people
0: have said it. <laughs> and tech and well,
1: sales. Yeah, so, so I was reading LinkedIn last last week, week before, and one of the thought leaders out there said, Look, sellers, if you practice, practice, practice. Every day, you know, in five years or 10 years, sales is going to be as easy as I don't know. I think the the term was like a hot knife through butter. And I was sitting there thinking, well, that's just complete and utter nonsense. I mean, sales is never easy. Yeah, anybody's listening, sales is never easy, it becomes simpler. And there's a big distinction between that, right? Absolutely. Is, and that's what your experience gets you. Is sales becomes simpler because you understand more what's going on. You understand what's going to happen. But it's don't ever kid yourself into thinking it's ever going to become easy. It's just it's hard. Sales is hard. Uh, it's always hard. And but if you can make it simpler, and the analogy I draw is, is I don't know, are you a sports fan? Absolutely. Okay, so what's your favorite sport?
0: Ooh, it's a tie between baseball and football, so go either way. We're in All baseball right, we'll, season. We'll, we'll that. use
1: football. As, as okay. the, but when you hear college athletes go into the pros, what do they say is their biggest adjustment? The speed of the game, right? And so totally different thing, yeah. It requires them to to think differently and react more quickly, and so on. But then they reach a point, and you hear interviews with athletes and they're football players, baseball players, whatever. It's like, well, yeah, well, the game has finally slowed down for me. You hear that expression all the time: the game has slowed down, meaning they they understand what's happening, right? They understand where they're supposed to be. They understand the the philosophy, both on offense and defense, and so on. And that's what you want to try to accomplish in sales: is you want sales to sort of slow down, right? It starts being a little more simple. You experience. You understand. But sorry, didn't mean to go in my soapbox. But it's never going to be easy. No, no, no. It
0: totally, <laughs> it totally is. And I think that whole uh, that the uh, quantity game that we we're talking about of just, just adding tons of more information out there is something that I think people think that they need to do. But if they stop for a second and kind of breathe and slow down, like you were saying, then everything does become simpler. It does. It's now again never going to be easy, but it's going to be more. Clearer that you're going to see the path to what you need to do, as opposed to just, you know, if I send out hundred emails, one of them's going to stick, right?
1: Well, but don't we serve we collectively as as a sales industry? We put sellers in a tough position though, because you know, increasingly since everything's so metrics-driven, is is, and granted, it's always been metrics in sales, right? Everybody's had their numbers, right? How many how many calls they have to make to have so many qualified opportunities to have prospects and so on or excuse me, proposals all the way through. Hey, it's been that way since since I started way too long ago. Um, but now there's such reliance on that, and you have the pipeline coverage ratios that AEs have to maintain that make it very difficult for them to spend the appropriate amount of time they need with their, especially larger opportunities, right, To to make sure that they can work the deal effectively in a way that should that's not pushing, but in helping enable the buyer to make a good choice. Yeah, they're sort sort of stock oftentimes, and yeah, I did this calculation a couple years ago, went back and looked on sort of my average pipeline coverage ratio, and it was generally less than two. But I won a high fraction of my deals because they were extremely qualified. Um, and I know sellers even today that are operating on similar pipelines, big SaS deals, right? It's possibly done, but I mean, how do sellers sort of get themselves in position to have this autonomy to operate in a way that aligns with what you talk about?
0: Yeah, I think it definitely has to come from a top-down kind of approach. Um, We have to reevaluate those metrics. I think you know some of these sales metrics. Are a little outdated. I mean, just because I send the five hundred, you know, emails in a week doesn't mean I'm going to get anything. But if I worry about those interactions at every little touch point and the quality and and the the fact that it's moving from one interaction to the next interaction mm-hmm. to the next, I think that's what we need to focus is on. Focus on is those personal interactions right. and not these stale metrics. And I understand they have to be there; otherwise, you know, there's nothing that holds you accountable. But I think there should be focus on both.
1: Yeah. Well, and i would had this conversation, again, related to this not that long ago about, yeah, I mean, I look at sales not as this linear stream of events, but as a Mm -hmm. collection of moments that aggregate to somebody making a choice or a decision about for your product is, yeah, how do we measure the quality of those moments? Because those are actually more insightful than just yeah, we've fulfilled an exit stage exit criteria. We're moving on to the next stage. It speaks nothing about the quality of what's happened.
0: Yeah, I think um, you know. I think the focus of the quality is so important that that's how you're going to get to that end deal. But I think also when you just because someone clicked on your email doesn't really say it's it. You know, they opened it doesn't mean it's an interaction. Just because they downloaded a white paper doesn't mean that they're ready to buy or there is an interaction. You have to actually see. You know, I think. Since intent data is something that's becoming more and more mm-hmm. popular, we right. have to go beyond that intent and see, you know, what is it that, what's behind it? Why are they doing it? What's happening in the organization? What's happening in their department? What's happening in their industry with their customers? Are they serving um, organizations or industries that are being really hit by the economic turndown or some other reason? You have to do more homework. You can't just say, Oh, they like that content. Let's, or they like this information. Let's send them more of the same. You have to actually <laughs> Think about what?
1: it. A what are you talking about? That's exactly what happened. <laughs> more, <Yeah>. more. <laughs> well, but I think you raise a larger issue, which we've touched on is just yeah, how do how do we evolve from where we are today? And yeah, I think we've I think the ship is is taking on water. Um and we've sort of been in this this sort of model, I won't label, but certainly in the tech space for 20 years now. Um, It's not going to be forever. We see the shortcomings. Companies are evolving away from it in various ways. Uh, What do you see is going to happen?
0: That we're evolving from the pushing down too much info?
1: Yeah, well, I call it basically sort of the predictable revenue model. Mm -hmm. Um, The way we structure... Especially working with bigger deals, it's got to be a better way to structure uh, deals. I Maybe mean, more team approaches, more nodes, more something. I mean, it's just, it just seems like we have to. Seems like we haven't evolved enough. And I'm just wondering what your insights you have on where you think it's going to go.
0: I, I'm, I'm hoping that it continues to evolve. And I think we, what we need to do is probably consider each group of accounts differently. Like not everything is the same. If a client is is potentially or a prospect is going to potentially bring you five figures or six figures, you can't treat them like a multimillion dollar account. You have to give more personal relevance. You have to give more touches, more insight into what they're doing. I think that's another thing. So people that are working those bigger accounts have to probably have different metrics than the people or the sales team that's having uh, smaller deal sizes. It can't be all the same metrics. And I think that's part of the evolution. And I'm hoping that's part of the evolution.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. I'm not sure myself. You know where it's where it's headed because we certainly have all these other influences in terms of you know increasing levels of, of automation in yeah, in sure. sales um, you know more AI obviously tools coming in to enable sellers to have a different quality of conversations perhaps with buyers, but I don't think it's it's not obviously not a end all be all solution um, but yeah, we hear this sort of conflicting Data points, if you will, is is on one hand, people are saying, well, you know, buyers are more self service oriented. They want more of a consumer uh, type experience in the B2B world, which quite honestly, they've sort of had increasingly anyway. It's been evolving. But at the same time, they also talk about, yeah, the experiential part of it's really important and we do need to talk to sellers. Um, But it's like, yeah, but who do they need to talk to at what time? Um, yeah, I just think there's a lot of sort of moving pieces that that um, it's going to be interesting to see how it shakes out, because I still at the end of the day think that, I think as perhaps you do, is that the human seller is still going to be at the center of it all, uh, but they have to be better than they are today.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You have to constantly uh, be better, uh, but I think you just know that you're dealing with someone when you're dealing with a prospect they're probably more educated than you think they are, so you have to in turn be just as educated about their business and their challenges and their gaps and their um, you know their needs in order mm-hmm. to move that conversation forward,
1: yeah, well, yeah, I think there's no no doubt about that is that the sellers are excuse me buyers are are more educated. they don't say have more understanding they have more knowledge. More knowledge. Yeah,
0: understanding is understanding's
1: different. Yeah, yeah, and I think this is that's the role of the seller is you know how do you help a buyer move from having knowledge about things to having understanding about things, whether it's I said the nature of the problem or the nature of the outcomes they can achieve, and that's still to your point is for an educated seller that's the place where you're going to add value.
0: Absolutely, and again, have to be every touch point adding value so that it you can move them forward because it's going to be, you know, we deal with people that have really pretty lengthy sales cycles. So each stage, each touch has to have that value. Otherwise, someone you've been working on for six months can just go at the very end because you didn't add value. And that's a lot of work thrown out the window.
1: Yeah, I I like the the idea that that, um, value is measured in progress. Right? That as a result of an interaction, If the buyer is not even in a small step, not closer to making a decision than they were before the interaction, then did you deliver anything of value? And I'd argue no, right? It's progress. Are you helping them move forward?
0: Yeah, and what what can you do to 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 try to fix that before it's too late? Because if they're not moving forward from each interaction, I mean, ideally that's what you'd like. They can stall a little bit, but if they're stalled too much, then that's that's going to be the Big problem to overcome.
1: That is the death knell. Absolutely. All right. Well, Christina, we've run out of time, but thank you for your time today. And if people want to connect with you or learn more about what you guys are doing, what's the best way to do that?
0: Uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. Give me some reason as to why you want to connect. That'd be really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, also, check out my website, personalabm.com. And uh, we also have a podcast that you're going to be on, Andy. I am, at yes. Stopthesalesdrop.com. Stop That's a community. It's all free. Podcasts, articles, videos, just a bunch of knowledge for B2B sellers um, and marketers. So check that out as well. Stop at salesdrop.com.
1: Yeah, I like the, uh, I like the urgency of the name. <laughs> thank you. It's a good title. All right, Christina, thank you very much. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, we're so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Christina Jaramillo for sharing her insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So again, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.